Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. So, uh, speaking of announcers, by the way, today is the 41st anniversary of the Miracle on Ice. And I wrote a note to Uncle Big Al last night, and I said, Happy anniversary. I think this may find its way onto PTI tomorrow. And he writes back and he says, Aruzioni and I have dined out on this for 41 years. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? This is General George Washington, and you're listening to the Tony Kornheiser Show. All righty then. Um, we have lots to get to today. It's, it's a sort of a... I'm, I'm, I hope this works out. We have Lenny Bernstein of the Washington Post, who does a lot of the medical coverage, and we're going to talk to him with, I guess, you know, questions about the coronavirus that any normal human being would have looking back now on it for a full year. So I'm excited about that. I hope that works out. Mark, Mark Feinsand of MLB.com will join us, and we'll start to talk about the Fernando Tatis Jr. deal, which is just an incredible deal, particularly with the backdrop of Albert Pujols, who signed an unbelievable deal when he was much older, when he was 31. And the numbers between Albert Pujols at St. Louis, where he was Lou Gehrig, and in Anaheim, where he's Albert Pujols, are, are really different. So those, that's, that's out there. But you cannot start a show today without talking about Tiger Woods. Um, and everyone knows where they were when they heard yesterday, what they were doing when they heard. Um, I was in the house. It was about 2.30, maybe 2.45. Uh, Matt Kelleher sent me a note that this had happened, that it was a developing story, that Tiger had been in an automobile crash. And at that time, it was being reported that they needed the jaws of life to get him out of the car. That turns out not to be true. They took him out through the windshield, which is still pretty scary. And then he uh, got a picture to show me of the turned over car. And you go, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And by the way, if I owned uh, the Genesis Auto Company... Very visible logo. I'd be pretty happy right now that that car saved his life. Well, particularly with the statement where they say they've, they've seen many wrecks where there's been there's been less issues, but they've had more damage in terms of loss of life. Yeah. And actually that the inside of the frame likely is what saved him, along yeah. with where it cushioned him. Belt. Yeah, and he had the seatbelt on. So, so I realized that, okay, as this goes on... And your first thought is, is this even true? But then when, when the L.A. sheriff uh, gets involved in it, you understand it's true, and we're going to have to change the show and all of that. And I will just I will, I will say what I have to say and, and give it to Michael because his thoughts, I'm sure, are different than mine. But I, my first thoughts, and I, there were four things in a row that happened in rapid succession. This probably has to do with my training when I was younger of being a reporter and framing stories based on questions that seem logical and quickly the first one was is he all right is he alive what is his condition that was the first thing i thought of when i found out that these were not life-threatening injuries when I, by reading the rest of, of the story that matt kelleher sent to me i said can he play again will he be able to play again and then will he play again now, very famously, Ben Hogan, who's one of the greatest golfers of all time, was 37 years old when he was in a terrible car accident, and he came back to play and won seven of his nine majors after that. So we have historical precedent to tell us this can be true, even with Tiger, who I believe is 44 or 45, 45. right now. Right. But, so will he play? Can he play? And then, then we've been through this before with Tiger. We've had strange car accidents before with Tiger what was his state of mind when this happened? Those were the four things that I thought of. And then a little bit later on, when we heard the phrase compound fracture, 
I immediately thought of Alex Smith. And it was so odd because late last night I read something. Uh, Alex Smith had given an interview to GQ in which he said the Washington football team didn't want anything to do with me. You know, they didn't want me on the team. They didn't think I could come back. And I, I you know, and so I'm sure there are a lot of people say, oh, that's so terrible. But my first reaction was, of course not. You, you had 87 surgeries. People thought you couldn't even walk again. How could you possibly be in their plans to be a quarterback in the National Football League? So, so he proved everybody wrong, but I don't, I don't hold them accountable. Or I don't fault them at all for what they thought. And I wondered, would Tiger see this as an Alex Smith opportunity? And that, honestly, the one other thing I thought of was if we never see him again competitively. And I mentioned this on Monday because on Monday on PTI, we talked about the interview he had with Jim Nance, where I thought, wow, I think Tiger's preparing us for the fact that he may never play again. And if that's true, then the last time we saw him competitively, competitively was with his son. And isn't that a nice ending? And those were my thoughts. Michael, what were yours? So this comes back to exactly where you start, which is where you were when you heard about this. And so much in that 2.10 to 2.30 time frame, Eastern Standard Time for us, it was coming out so quickly. You're trying to get the verification. This is before you get the, the official statement from his agent, where you find out that you are in. There is surgery, but right. it is not life-threatening. It, it is damage to the legs. Let, let, let me just interject this one thing. Um, Mark Steinberg has been his agent for a long time. There is those of us who have listened to his statements before understand that there is no reason to believe he is telling the full truth unless it suits him to do so. I mean, he is he he protects his job is to protect Tiger Woods. So so that's when you start to question based on previous um, accidents and, and, and sort of previous um behaviors, you start to wonder, what is the state of mind? Yep. And then you start looking at time of place and you go, okay, 7 a.m. is very different than, say, early morning hours. Absolutely. Particularly when you get the... the it's light on the road. It's fine. Particularly when you get the images from the day before where he's out with David Spade and you yep. see him with D. Wade and, he, and you know he is working. So it makes yep. sense that he's on the road early. And then you, you get the statements from the police officers where they don't suspect any sort of in, intoxication, that right. he is calm and lucid, that he is aware of where he is, time of day, aware of his own name. So then you begin to wonder what caused the accident yes you know like for example as we were talking about this before we went on the air uh, in that area of california which is relatively um wooded and and almost rural even though it's not rural with in severe, california with severe slopes yeah maybe a deer maybe a deer jumped across the road and he turned you know i mean you you don't know there's a, a thousand possibilities yeah, and those, or too fast and those, yeah and, and then those questions start to creep up when you start to see you don't see signs of breaking and you see him taking this uh this this uh this steep slope at a faster rate yep. of speed and that frankly they see this pretty often and then how quickly the locals were able to call emergency services makes you think this is something that happens there regularly i think i think that that's true um, I think there is there are TMZ reports that I read today, and TMZ often gets it right. They don't always get it right, but they often get it right that he got a late start to a shoot that he had to get to, and that he was going too fast, and he was observed going too fast, and and you know, and that's possible as well. I will tell you where Wilbon's mind went first, and mine did not to Kobe, to Kobe first, and I think mine did not because I. That's an airplane situation, a helicopter situation. This is a car. But I think a lot of people went to Kobe, and that's what they thought right away. Oh, my God, is he dead? You know, 
Well, and then you start thinking, was he trying to overdrive the situation if you are running late? And if you think, well, I'm from Southern California, I kind of know what these roads look and feel like, even if I'm in in an unfamiliar car. And then for you, you're going immediately to Alex Smith. And as you take a look at what sort of injuries are happening to the right leg and how they're putting the rod in to secure that. And you're looking at the compound fractures. And so you start to wonder, will he play or can he play? And, and it looks actually like if these are clean breaks, you probably can. But if you then look at the immediate weeks after the Alex Smith injury, even more so than, than the break, you start infection. looking at the infection. Yes. And that's where you start to look, because everything has to happen so fast, because, even if he's with the best medical team, he's not necessarily where he wants to be. If he wants to be back in Southern Florida as he's working through some of this this rehab, then you just you hope that that is not the case, because that seems like it could be much more damning. But as you take a look at where he was in the winter playing with Charlie and sort of enjoying the role of ambassador before the yes. role of golfer, enjoying the role of father, you start to actually look, okay, he, he's not going to be able to make, make any sort of return or possible return until he is in his late 40s. At that point, you start to enter the mythical land of Jack Nicholas, 46, to win the Masters, and you start thinking, all right, maybe you, ha- maybe you have some shot to compete or to string together a couple of good rounds, but you're not looking at seasons of competitiveness yeah. when you think about how long the layoff has been already. But then you start to look, maybe there is something about him where he's already started to make this transition. And I, I, a few years ago, I used a quote from Ulysses, and we were talking about the Tiger Woods uh, return. Though much is taken, much abides, and though we are not now that strength, which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are. And I was actually thinking about the beginning of the poem, and I wanted to just read this to you. I cannot rest from travel. I will drink life to the lees. All times I have enjoyed greatly, have suffered greatly, both with those that loved me and alone on shore. And when through scudding drifts the rainy Hyades vex the dim sea, I am become a name. And you start to think of the transition where, what if we see Tiger Woods no longer as Tiger Woods, the competitor, the player, uh, and, and we, we see him entering that stage where he is a name. He is more of this idea. And, and that's sort of the, 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 the frame I'm thinking of as the ambassador, if he yeah. can take that role. Um, for those who think that Tiger Woods is not way, way, way above the others in some celestial area. That was the lead story on the nightly news last night. Tiger Woods' car accident. Uh, uh, Sports has this particular place in the culture. And Tiger Woods, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who's had the highs and the lows like Tiger Woods. The highs of putting together a 10-year career as a very young man, the greatest player ever in his sport. It's undeniable. He does not have the longevity because of what happened to him next in that next 10-year period because of, you know, the accident in Florida, which we still don't know the full context of, but the apologies and, and Tiger being unable to play golf in the same way that he could before. And then the comeback to win the Masters, the most important tournament to any golfer in the world. And now this, it's just, it is, it is such a spike of highs and lows. And I find myself thinking that, yes, at his age now, for the same way Alex Smith did this, for, and it's vanity, but it's vanity in its purest form. It's not terrible at all to come back and say, I want to show myself in the world that I can do this, but mostly myself. 
Maybe he makes a comeback like that, and maybe he plays again. But the Tiger Woods in your mind, just like the Alex Smith in your mind, that doesn't exist anymore, and it will not exist then. That's not going to be possible. So maybe he settles into something else. And again, if, if for some of us, the enduring image of Tiger Woods is playing with his kid in the same way that when he won tournaments and he came out and hugged his own dad and he hugged his own child playing with him. If that's the last memory that we have of him competitively, I can certainly but, live and, with that. But that's why the return of the roar in that 2019 Masters was not just about one single tournament. It was the connection across the ages, and, and it was the connection that all kids and dads felt as they were, as they were experiencing those hugs from, uh, from his dad to Tiger, and then from Tiger to Charlie in 2019. And it was, it was not just that tournament. It was the extension from the Tour Championship and the way the family of Tour players responded to him before they headed off to the Ryder Cup through that tournament and how it was, it was a tournament that was won with guile and experience, not the sort of... It was, not it, was flash. Phase, it was phase two. It was not Tiger 97 no, hitting a pitching no. wedge into a par five. And by the way... Um, if you saw any of the fellow pros yesterday talking about Tiger, uh, they were essentially moved to tears and they want so much. See, this is not, these are not his rivals anymore. These are his children in a lot of ways. These are people who grew up idolizing Tiger, Justin Thomas, John Rahm, Rory McIlroy. When you see them quoted, it is they're, they're shaken profoundly and want only the best for him. I don't even think they're thinking about golf. They're thinking about his health and his life. We will take a break. Mark Feinsand of MLB.com will join us when we return, and we'll go to another subject entirely. And I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. This is the Butcher Box, Read. Not everyone has convenient access to high-quality meat. I did this last night. I grilled last night. I went out yesterday um grilling weather yeah i went out yesterday four or five times and chopped ice on my deck and chopped enough of a path that i could get to the grill and i could be comfortable grilling and i grilled last night because one of the things that i get from butcher box is pork chops i grilled four pork chops last night and they were great and i grilled them hot and fast no no uh 20 minutes total 20 minutes total and and uh two or two of them had um open pit and the other two had that kinder um, rub that was on, and I, I was really happy with them. I, I had a, I was really happy. You know, you know when I do butcher box, you know I pay for this myself. You know I'm bitter that I don't get the bonus things, but, <laughs> but I also pay for it myself, and I'm, it's just high quality stuff. You can't even I can't ruin it. I cannot ruin it. Every I just can't. Uh, today's sponsor, ButcherBox, believes everyone deserves high-quality, humanely-sourced meat. ButcherBox couldn't be easier. Sign up, select your box. They ship it to you right to your door every month. When you sign up now, you get two New York strip steaks and one pack of bacon for free. I'm so angry and jealous. I want that. ButcherBox is a no-brainer. It's the best meat shipped right to my door, which means one less trip to the grocers. Options like 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar nitrate-free bacon. It's the way meat should be. ButcherBox is the most affordable and convenient way to get healthy, humanely raised meat. With ButcherBox, you get the highest quality meat for about $6 a meal. And for a limited time, ButcherBox is offering new members. New members, damn it. Not existing members. Two New York strip steaks and one pack of bacon for free in your first box. Just go to ButcherBox.com slash cadence, C-A-D-E-N-C-E. 
That's but see, they don't care if you if you listen to this show. They're looking around the entire range of cadence partnerships to see what cadence is bringing in. They don't care about Tony. That's butcherbox.com slash cadence to get two New York strip take steaks and one pack of bacon for free in your first box. Get it and use the code people. You're listening to the Tony Kornheiser show. This is sent to us from Jonathan Scriven who writes formerly of Nice, France. So he's on the move. He says, I'm attaching two songs from a group called Morning Angle and quarantined formed indie pop duo based out of London. It also happens that they are two of my former students from my days teaching in France. Sam Threadgold and Joseph McCarthy, not that Joseph McCarthy, <laughs> have been playing music together since their days in middle school. Both lived in my village just outside Nice. I've known them for years. About 18 months ago, I sent two songs from Sam when he was with another band, but things changed. That band no longer exists. Now he's gotten together with Joe to form Morning Angle. Attached are two catchy little tunes. And this one is called By Design. The song later in the show will be called Millennials, and we will play that as well. Morning Angle. Very, very nice. We will uh, now go to Mark Feinsand of MLB.com. And I just wanted to start with the very happy notion for me and for everybody else that even if you can't go to the ballpark yet, Pitchers and catchers have reported, and you see those lovely shots of people, many in masks, some not in masks, catching ground balls, throwing them around the infield, working on long toss and stuff like that. Let's start with the Tatis contract. And I bring this up for backdrop, as you well know. Um, Albert Pujols signed an incredibly fantastic contract at the time 10 years ago. He's now in his last year with the Angels. And fell off the side of the mountain. It's the San Andreas fault on one side. Uh, and, you know, on the other side, it's just despair in terms of his career with the Cardinals and with the Angels. But Tatis is so much younger. I mean, I, I'm sure you would agree that, that Albert Pujols is a cautionary tale for giving somebody an enormous contract at 31. But he's like, what, 23, 24? So what do you think of the deal? Yeah, I mean, he's 22. And 22? Okay. Yeah, he'll, he'll be... Uh, he just turned 22 in January. So we're talking about a kid who, at the time that this 14-year contract is finished, will still be five years younger than Albert Pujols is right now. So, right. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's natural to look at some of these lengthy deals, but this is where you're seeing baseball going now, where you're not going to see guys at 31 getting the 10-year deal that Pujols did, that Robinson Cano did. Um, you know, now you're seeing Manny Machado at 25 get the 10-year deal. Bryce Harper at 26 get the, you know, the 13-year deal, which, uh, you know, took his, will take him into his late 30s, and that's the rarity. Um, Tatis, I think it's, it's wonderful, right? I mean, he's probably the most electric player in the sport. Um, maybe the one guy who you just say – Every time you watch him, there's a chance you're going to see something you haven't seen before. Uh, and the energy which he plays is just uh, its infectious. And I think the idea that he wanted to stay in San Diego, of all places, not that there's anything wrong with San Diego by any means. Right. Beautiful city that anybody would want to live in. But a small market team investing $340 million to keep that guy in their uniform for essentially his whole career, or you would hope his whole career, uh, I think it's great for the game. So we had this on PTI when it happened, and the question was, who got the better of the deal, the Padres or Tatis? And I said, Tatis, because he's 22. You don't know. 
We may have seen the best of him already. You, you, he could be Tony Canigliaro. He could, he could rip a hamstring or an Achilles. Or I mean, you know, we don't know. It's such a long deal. And if it turns out that he is the greatest thing since sliced bread and the Padres got the better of the deal, then God bless them, right? But, I mean, yeah, my sense would I, be now Tatis got the better of the deal. Now. So. I would agree with that. And if it turns out that the Padres got the better of the deal, Tatis is still going to have $340 million. So That's right. It's not, yes. like, it's not like, you you know, when it's all said and done, somebody can do a cost analysis and say, oh, well, he, he you know, won this many games with them and he had this many stats and this and that and is a Hall of Famer. Uh, he could have signed for $520 million. That's all well and good. I'm guessing his life isn't going to be much different at 340 than it would have been at 500 had he played out his arbitration years and then cashed in on a big free agent contract. Yeah, there's certainly some, uh, you know, some cost issues in terms of, you know, who's going to get the better of the deal, but I don't think it matters. I think this is, this is the Padres investing in the future. This is Tatis saying, you know, he said, I want a statue. People are not calling this a statue contract, meaning, you know, spend his whole career in one place establish his legacy there, and then have a statue in front of the ballpark. Um, and I like that attitude from him. The Padres also did something really smart in the, um, the way they structured this deal. You know, they're paying him minimally $1 million, $3 million, $5 million over the next few years, uh, which was arbitration years. And then, you know, and then it goes to about $20 million and $20 million and 25 and 25 He doesn't make $36 million in a season until Machado's contract is over. So this allows them to have Machado and Tatis, two $300 million players, and still be able to build around them as well and not just rely mm. on two players. So I thought it was very smart the way they did it. And uh, you look at what they've done this winter, they're you know, arguably the second-best team in the sport right now. Yeah, and they're 90 miles away from the best team in the sport. Let me get to two questions that suggest themselves. They are spending big money where does it come from? Who is the owner? Where does it come from? And two, there are no fans. Where is their income? Where do baseball teams make enough money to do this? Yeah, you know, I think there's the expectation that fans will be back, whether it's not at full force this year, but at some point, uh, you know, in the future. Mm -hmm. um, Peter Seidler is the owner of the team. There was a transfer of ownership this winter. He had been a minority owner. He took over. Ron Fowler stepped down, the longtime chairman. Um, Peter Seidler is the grandson of Walter O'Malley. Um, oh, okay. And the nephew of Peter O'Malley. So there is a baseball history there. Um, he had a private equity firm. You know, he's uh, estimated to be worth, or the firm's estimated to be worth somewhere in the $3 billion range. So there's money there. It's not Steve Cohen money, but there's money there. Right, um, right. But I think, you know, baseball TV deals, there's, there's money coming in, but obviously not as much as there was pre-pandemic. But the Padres are one of the few teams that you're seeing saying, not that this is necessarily a discounted price, but saying the opportunity to spend money to get better right now is as good as it's ever been because nobody else is doing it, right? There were only maybe four, five teams this winter. Well, the Dodgers, were, the Dodgers that were the Dodgers are definitely doing it. The White yeah. Sox did it this winter. The Blue Jays certainly did it. The Mets, to some extent, did it and certainly will do it when we talk about what, was likely, what will likely be the next big extension in Francisco Lindor. Um, but most teams are going the other way. You saw the Cubs trim payroll. You saw yes. uh, a bunch of teams move players to trim the payroll uh, and not get aggressive in spending. And so the Padres and, and some of these other teams are looking at it. And Boston saying, did that too. Boston yep. trim payroll. Yeah. You know, this might be the time to strike, and good for them.
Are they behind the Dodgers or are they even? I think you have to say they're still behind the Dodgers until they actually are able to overtake the Dodgers. Um, you know, I thought as big of anything that I saw this winter was, <clears throat> excuse me, was the Padres bringing in Blake Snell and Yu Darvish because obviously to put them atop their rotation and obviously Clevenger's not going to pitch this year; he's out, but he will be back next year. But to have Darvish and Snell under control for a few years to go eventually with Clevenger, with Chris Paddock, with uh, Denelson Lamette. They have a really good rotation. And, uh, you know, just when you say, well, they're, they're really captain of the Dodgers. The <laughs> hold Dodgers on, hold it. The Dodgers have two Cy Young guys well, coming in. That, right, two. Just, right. just when you start to think that the yeah. Padres are sort of evening that score, the Dodgers say, oh, that's cute. We're going to go sign the, the, the reigning Cy Young Award winner. So I think and we're going to bring in David Price. We're going to bring back David Price, who didn't pitch last year. Two Cy Young guys. To join yeah, Kershaw, to and, Kershaw and and not even and at the top. Probably better than all of them. <laughs> That's right. So those no, two teams, they could be the two best teams in baseball. They could. Be. I think. I think they are. I really do. I think yeah. we, we do power rankings at MLB.com, and we had them ranked one two this week uh, in the first one of the spring. I, I think they are. Even without Clevenger, the Padres are just loaded. They're not as loaded as the Dodgers, but it's going to be, uh, you know, 19 games of must-see TV between these two teams. I think this has become sort of what we're going to be looking at as the next great rivalry in baseball. So let, let me, because I can't possibly do a baseball segment without talking about the Nats, let me ask this question. Didn't like you guys had it four and five in that power ranking. Yeah, yeah. So all right, let me get to the Soto, the Soto question. Yeah. All right, is Soto the guy that is supposed to get this kind of contract that Tatis just got? He's the same age as Tatis, right? Or is he younger? He's younger, I believe, uh, yeah. by about a, by a year. Uh, I don't think you're going to see an extension like this for Soto because Soto, unlike Tatis, is represented by Scott Boris, and oh. Boris is you know Strasburg yeah. being the exception to the rule. Uh, you know, when he signed that extension a few years back, I think Boris views Soto as the guy who has the potential, uh, based on what he's done already in his career and his age and everything else, the potential to maybe be the sport's first $500 million player. And it would not surprise me at all if they go year to year, they play out the arbitration years, they get to free agency. And if Soto has done what he, if Soto continues to do what he has done, uh, you know, he'll have a chance to, to top Mike Trout's contract and, and become the highest paid player in the sports history. And mm-hmm. I think I think Scott Boris knows that and I think he enjoys the idea of that and he's probably telling Soto that. Um, you know, look if the Nationals come out and say here's some sort of record deal, here's four hundred something, sure, I could see it happening, but um it would not it would not surprise me if Soto ends up playing out year to year. Uh, it leads us, although the Dodgers and the Padres may be the best two teams in baseball, the NL East appears to be the best division in baseball. Am I correct? you want to break that down for us? I don't even think it's close, Tony. I think you look at the, the five teams in the NL East, uh, you could make a legitimate argument for any one of them as a playoff team this year. Uh, the Braves obviously are coming off of, of what, three straight NL East titles. Mm-hmm. The Nationals won the World Series a couple years ago, and they've made some interesting moves this year. Um, you know, with Lester and, and Schwarber and um, uh, Brad Hand, so I, you know I think they've they've certainly improved themselves. Uh, the Mets bring in Francisco Lindor, uh, James McCann, and, and some others. Uh, you know, the Phillies are still, uh, I think, a team you have to 
be concerned with, with, uh, you know, really good manager at the helm of Joe Girardi. And then, you know, any team that has Bryce Harper and Hoskins and some of these, and Aaron Nola, yeah. these, it's a very good team. And then the Marlins were the surprise last year. So top to bottom, it's a really good division. And I think uh, the fact that they each have to play each other 18 or 19 times uh, could make it tough for anybody in the division to get a wild card spot even because they're going to be beating up on each other all year. So, um, you know, that said, there are some very bad teams in the National League as well. You look at teams like the Rockies and the Diamondbacks and the Pirates and uh, – you know, there, there will be a chance for those teams to fatten up their records when they play some interdivision uh, games as well. But yeah, that at least that could be a really, really exciting division where you go into September and four, maybe five teams still have a chance. The Nats, of course, their signings are completely different from the Padres. They're taking one-year deals on people or one or two-year deals. Uh, and, you know, with Schwarber, for example, that's a one-year deal. But I, I guess are, I'll, I'll get you out of here on this, Mark. Are you confident? And you can judge confidence. You can do that on a sliding scale. Are you confident in a full season of 162? Are you confident in that? Well, I'm as confident as a non-medical professional could be. Uh, I think that, you know, we've seen the NFL complete a full season. We're seeing basketball and hockey get through their seasons. Um, I'm sure there will be some speed bumps along the way that will uh, cause some seven-inning doubleheaders and, and cause some postponements. But... You know, MLB got through the 60-game sprint, and they were the first ones. They were sort of the test case last year. Now they've had a full offseason to, you know, figure out the safety protocols and how to best make sure. I think the biggest thing, just like it was last year, is just going to be the buy-in from the players and the teams and the managers and everybody to commit to following these protocols. You know, they say don't leave the hotel, don't leave the damn hotel. You say, uh, you know, you, whatever rules are in place, people have to follow them or else they may as well not be there. So if everybody follows everything, I, I do feel like they're going to be able to get through it. Thank you, Mark. Talk to you soon. Appreciate it very much. Thanks, Tony. Mark Feinstein, boys and girls, from MLB.com. We will take a break. Lenny Bernstein of the Washington Post will join us when we return, and we will talk about the coronavirus with a certain amount of distance now that it's almost a full year. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. This is a ZipRecruiter ad. The best teams start with great talent, but finding the right people can be a challenge. When it comes to hiring for your business, ZipRecruiter can help you find the right candidates for your team fast, from healthcare to manufacturing to business services and more. And now you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com Tony. When you post a job on ZipRecruiter, it gets sent out to over 100 top job sites with one click. Then ZipRecruiter's matching technology scans thousands of resumes and profiles to send you the most qualified people for your job. If you're really interested in a candidate, you can invite them to apply for your job with one click. ZipRecruiter sends them an email from you, and you stand out from the competition. It's so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. How do you think I got Nigel? How do you think? Really? How do you think? And right now, to try ZipRecruiter for free, my listeners to this high-quality podcast can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Tony. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash T-O-N-Y. ZipRecruiter.com slash Tony. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Use the code, people. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. The Tony Kornheiser Show. Once again, we give you Morning Angle. A quarantine-formed indie pop duo from London. This is called Millennials. 
Michael, if people like Morning Angle want to send us their original music, which can be heard in its entirety at the end of the podcast without me talking over it, how do they do it? Send us your music by emailing it to jingles at tonykornizershow.com. And what is our Johnny O code? TK Clocks. A few weeks away, but we're ready. Okay, that's good. Lenny Bernstein of the Washington Post joins us now. And before we went on the air, I just said, I'm going to be that guy who corners you at a cocktail party, if and when cocktail parties are allowed to happen again, and asks you questions pertaining only to his life. He covers medicine, medical things for the Washington Post. So we'll start with this. And this is the sort of overview. I seem to recall about a year ago watching one of those news conferences with Anthony Fauci and Deborah Bricks. Um, and there was the first report that I remember, please correct me if I'm wrong, the first report that I remember the estimates of how bad it could be, I thought came from Washington State, uh, a, a university out in Washington State, and the number I recall was 180,000. But this is the worst, 180,000 deaths. And everybody got up there and said, oh, no, 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 that's crazy talk. No, that's way too much. Well, Lenny, we're at 500,000 right now, 500,000. And we're the allegedly the smartest, richest country in the world. How did we get to this point? Yeah, good memory. Um, and there was, <clears throat> pardon me, another point where uh, Dr. Fauci said 240 and, and everybody had the same reaction, 240,000 deaths. Uh, we'll never get there. Um, we're more than double that right now. Tony, we mishandled the uh, pandemic um, in so many ways. Um, it's almost difficult to go back over the last 12 months and just think about it. But um, you know, the, the, the Trump administration uh, left the states to their own devices to try to handle a, a, a worldwide pandemic or, or if you want to look at it this way, something that was washing across the entire United States. They had to handle it themselves. They had to compete with each other for equipment. Um, then uh, uh, we, we politicized masks. And uh, as a society, we couldn't even agree to, to uh, you know, uh, wear a mask to keep the, um, to keep the uh, virus from spreading among ourselves. Right. Um, right. That's just a couple of things. But uh, I, I'm just going to interrupt for a second because yeah. I sort of remember, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, I sort of remember Dr. Fauci at the beginning thinking masks were not all that important. Am I wrong yeah. on that? Nope. You're not wrong. Um, there was a time actually when the Surgeon General uh, tweeted, please, people don't buy masks. But, but that was because they were trying to leave the N95 masks for healthcare workers. So right. that was a mis that was a mismessaging. Um, they quickly discovered, you know, that the rest of us could could wear cloth masks or in or, you know, less protective masks and still have a major impact on the virus. So, again, that was a misstep. Um, and then, you know, you, you, I don't have to remind people who are listening, you know, the parties over July 4th, uh, the Thanksgiving visits. I mean, we've done so much wrong over the past 12 months, um, you know, and here we are. And, and yet, and, you know, I should say this, the vaccine arrived quickly, much quicker than any than any other vaccine had arrived before. And, and you've got it. And yet the rollout and there is a new administration the rollout doesn't seem to be much better, does it? The, the development of the vaccine in 11 months is a complete triumph. Um, yeah. it, it's a triumph of science, and it's a triumph of, uh, for the Trump administration. They, they have to be credited with that. Yes, yes. Uh, absolutely. 
Um, but again, we then didn't follow through. We left the distribution of the vaccine kind of up to, you know, a haphazard network of doctors and hospitals. We, you know, we contracted with some drugs, the, the drug chains, and that, that's getting rolling and, and did to nursing homes. So, so that's a good thing. But again, there was no uh, overall national plan about getting this life-saving vaccine that we were so good at developing into people's arms in a in a quick fashion. So, uh, an astonishing thing, at least on my read, it was astonishing to find out last week to read a story that the Pfizer vaccine, which is supposed to be kept under extreme cold temperatures and supposed to be a two-shot vaccine, is a one-shot vaccine and can basically be stored in your refrigerator. And I, I mean, I said to somebody, this would be like if somebody said to me, you can only wear a blue shirt on television. Everything else will be distorted. The color won't work. It must be blue. There are no exceptions. It must be blue. And then a couple of weeks in, somebody said, you got a pink shirt? You can wear that. And I go, What? What do you mean I can wear that? What do you mean it's only one shot and it doesn't? Ha- how how could they how could they be finding that out now? And the only thing I could think of was there was such a great rush to get a vaccine that worked that nobody played with the margins on it. They said this is the way it's going to be. Well, it's not yet determined that it's the one shot vaccine. There are some studies that you're referring to that show that it appears to with just one shot but we the the second shot produces an even greater immune response and right now because variants are circulating you don't want to mess with that in any large way now they may change this guidance you know a a few weeks from now or tomorrow but right right now right now the orthodoxy is because we don't know what's out there we want to give everybody the strongest possible immune response to the virus and right now with pfizer that takes two shots they also are discovering as you said that they may be able to store it at warmer temperatures still in the you know slightly below zero range and that will allow us to get it out to um, places further and further away from big cities because those places don't have super cold refrigerators so if, if, if the trend continues in this way, and for example, a Johnson & Johnson vaccine comes out and, and people can have that, it would seem to me, you know, that, that we would be able to vaccinate the entire country in relatively short terms by, you know, June or July or something like that. But, and this is, it doesn't even matter if I'm wrong on that, because it leads to this question. There appear to be a sizable percentage of people who don't want this. They don't want this vaccine. Why don't they want it? How many of them are there? And in your mind, as an ethicist, should they be forced to get it for the greater good of everyone? Okay, so um, just on the first point, yes. And I'm an optimist by by nature. And I think that when I see Pfizer and um, the other companies sitting down in front of Congress, as they did yesterday, and saying they're going to have 220 million doses out there by the end of March, that makes me very happy. I, I, I don't think Pfizer got to be Pfizer by over-promising and under-delivering. Now, it remains to be seen whether they can do that. But 220 million is a lot. Um, yeah. You know, that's 150, 160 first doses and, you know, 60 or 70 million 
uh, people who are getting two doses. So that's great. Uh, people are hesitant about taking the vaccine because they don't trust the medical system, because they uh, are worried about anything that you're going to inject into their bodies, because there's a ton of misinformation being circulated on the Internet. Uh, for African-Americans, we have the whole Tuskegee experiment. The, the legacy right. of that is not that old. And uh, just playing emphasis for a few seconds here, no, you cannot force people to take a vaccine. We have to get to herd immunity by persuading people that this is the way to go. Will we need, in your opinion, from the doctors you talk to, will we need a shot every year? Will this become sort of like a flu shot? No one knows. Um, it's, you know, the virus will probably be endemic at a low level the way the flu is. Uh, you know, eventually when we crush it, when we get beyond the, the outbreak that we're living in right now, it will probably be with us. It will probably be among us. And we will probably have to uh, deal with it in some way uh, year in, year out. But nobody knows because there hasn't been enough time what the, right. the, uh, how durable our immunity is going to be to this virus once we're all vaccinated. I don't think you can stress this enough how amazing it is that th there is a vaccine this quickly and it, and it seems to be effective. Um, there, you read about what Australia did. You read about what New Zealand did. They have the ability to close their borders. Should we have, it, among the mistakes that we have made was one to not close our borders. Should we have done that? Because clearly it was transmitted throughout this country by people coming in. Didn't start here. Right. Um, so it's always, helpful in a pandemic to be an island when you where you can yeah. you know close your borders and say nobody can fly in uh yes we probably should have done uh, a stronger version of the uh, transportation restrictions that we put in place at the beginning of the pandemic but you know we brought those folks back from china uh you know what in january was that those were americans who were stuck in china Mm -hmm. You know, once we brought people back into um, into the United States, even though we quarantined them for 14 days, it was really hard to keep that virus from circulating around here. And then, yeah, of course, we had people flying in and out every single day uh, that other countries didn't. Can I ask some personal questions now? I mean, it, you think it's okay to go to a hotel? Do you think it's okay to go to a spa? Do you think it's okay to get a massage? Do you think it's okay to get a facial or get your nails done? I mean, I understand it's okay to go outside and play golf, but is it okay to be indoors and do those things, or is that a mistake now? Are you vaccinated? I am, yes. Okay, so that's great. Um, and you have both I'm not. old. When you're when you're old, when you're old, you're the, the line forms with you. Yes. <laughs> you're both you have both shots. Yes. OK, so that's terrific. Um, I, I would uh, wearing a mask, you know, and I'm not a doctor, but wearing a mask, right. I think, uh, you know, getting my hair cut, um, going to a hotel, you know, and, and just basically being in the room, maybe not hanging out at the bar for two hours. Right. Um, right. You know, I, I would do those things once I was vaccinated. These are very difficult questions, and a lot of people are looking to the CDC to start putting out guidance on this. But, you know, what people want to do is go see their grandchildren when they have, you know, two, two uh, shots in them. Can they go do that, or, or are they going to be risking, you know, their kids and their kids' kids? Um, I think that you can do more than people like me who are not vaccinated yet, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't go hang out in a movie theater for two hours without a mask. 
Right. Um, I, I just, you know, there's, it's just still a little too risky. There's too many of us who are not vaccinated. But I think you can sort of slowly and tentatively with the advice of, you know, real experts start to move uh, out a little bit and, um, you know, spend time with, with other people that you haven't been able to do. Now, you said earlier in this conversation you were optimistic by nature. Are you optimistic now? Uh, you mean about the end of the whole thing? Yes, about about how it's moving now and about whether or not we can achieve some form of tolerable immunity. Yes. So we're in a foot race between the vaccine and the virus. And right now, cases of the virus are declining precipitously. Although if you look at the, a graph of the, of the past year, we're, we're at roughly the same place we were, the peak of the second surge, the one that washed through the South and the Southwest last summer. So mm-hmm. we still have a very long way to go. We're at about 55, 60,000 cases a day, which looks great when you're at 300,000 cases a day, not so great when you're at you know, 500 cases a day. But the trend is the right direction. The cases are coming down. Every day, more and more people are vaccinated. So the vaccine is going up. Uh, If we stay disciplined, keep our masks on, keep our distancing going while we do all the things you and I have just discussed here, Mm -hmm. I am optimistic that by July, August, we will be living in a pretty normal version of the way we used to live although I think you'll still be wearing masks for a while. That's okay. You know, wearing the mask is okay. That's, that's all right. Lenny, this it's has not, been great. It's not Thank- really a hardship. No, no, it's really not. Neither is working in your attic. It's not a hardship. It's okay. <laughs> this has been great. Thanks so very much for your time. Appreciate it. Anytime. Lenny Bernstein, boys and girls, we'll take a break. We will have uh, email and jingle when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. Tony Kornheiser Show. We have a new sponsor of the show, Michelob Ultra, so I'd like to celebrate their joining us. You know, beer is synonymous with celebrating after a big win. It goes hand-in-hand with the joy that athletes experience from victory. Because of that, there is a perception that happiness and beer only come at the end of a journey, only come after the grind, after the hard work, after the win. Michelob is setting out to dismantle that perception. By partnering with some of the greatest athletes and proven winners of all time, they are demonstrating that happiness comes before the victory and that joy is a crucial ingredient on the road to success. Even the greatest athletes in the world choose to take time off the court or field to unplug, to have a beer with friends, and find balance. Michelob is not discounting the hard work and commitment that it takes to become a world-class athlete and win championships, but they firmly believe that enjoyment and balance are crucial components of the winning formula. It's not just about professional athletes. Everyone out there should know that they can and should enjoy themselves on the road to success in life, and that they should permit themselves to have fun, smile more, and have a beer with friends. Like having a Michelob Ultra, 95 calories, 2.6 grams of carbs. It's only worth it if you enjoy it. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. Here comes Tony's mailbag, got your emails, boxes, and your notes. Tony's mailbag, gonna read some for you folks. 
That was sent to us by Chris Reif in Martinsburg, West Virginia, who says, That's my 12-year-old niece, Olivia Jo Chase, on vocals, accompanied by her loyal little annoying guitar guy uncle. She's somewhat <laughs> shy about her voice, but I think it's as beautiful as she is. It would be a great deal to hear her effort on the pod. Makes you smile. Wasn't it nice? That was so nice. Nigel, give us the Bethesda bagel read. Bethesda Bagels, we love them, you will as well. All you need to do is go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you, then pop on in, and you will be thrilled. Before we get to the mailbag, which is all about water bills, let me just say we skipped the light fandango, turned cartwheels across the floor. I was feeling kind of seasick, but the crowd called out for more. Um, that is one of the great songs of all time. It's just... It's just fabulous. Thanks to our guest today, Mark Feinsand of MLB.com and the Washington Post, Lenny Bernstein. Thanks to our sponsors, ZipRecruiter, ButcherBox, Michelob Ultra, Pure Gold. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, GooglePlayRadio.com. If you get the show through iTunes, please leave us a review. As Michael quoted Ulysses before, that's a song about Jeffrey Chaucer. So it's I'm still upset you know, for interrupting you and Mr. Feinsand. I should oh, never do that. Don't worry it's about one it. of my. It's one of the golden rules. It's okay. I thought he was going to go into the Mets and Braves. Well, he didn't do it. I was trying to tee him up. <laughs> yeah. Kevin Stanfield writes, Your recent struggles with the outlandish water bill reminded me of how the express lane establishment tried to squeeze me. That is until Bill Isaacson rode in on his white horse and negotiated them into submission. Check out the big brain on Bill. We literally changed the way a major corporation does business in this country. One person can make a difference, really, even a little. It's not the principle of the thing. It's the money. Fight the power. Keep hope alive. So good to hear from it's Kevin. such an insider email. But it's so true. Um, from Andrew Bronson in Aurora, Illinois. Tony, maybe Peter Yarrow broke into the beach house and turned on all the faucets. Have you ruled that out? That's possible. From Brent Hood in Gilbert, Arizona. First time, long time. While never in the building department, I have over 15 years of water, wastewater treatment experience. Here are a few things to check on to help resolve your problem. Several of the municipalities I've worked with will issue one yearly credit for any leak problems the residents have had. If not in Rehoboth, you could see if they would waive the wastewater fees since we will be going with the contractors across the street are to blame. Look at the, looking at the city of Rehoboth water rates, depending upon your home's location, a thousand gallons of drinking water would cost $16.86, and the same amount of water would cost $45.75 as wastewater, approximately three times as much. Unless your water is cut off at the meter, your outdoor faucets will have water pressure. If you have locks on them, look for evidence of tampering. Any decent worker man will have the knowledge and or tools to get around those. Check with any neighbors or town hall if anyone else has had similar issues. Take the bill over to the contractors, the neighbors and demand reparations. Maybe save this one for last. Granted, this is all predicated on the plumber not finding any issues. The plumber was there, found no issues. But those of us who do this for a living take theft seriously. Water loss affects the bottom line, and most municipalities rely on the revenue from water and wastewater to keep up the services and departments. So isn't that nice? This was really good. He said, I never thought my first email would be about water and wastewater. Missed, forgot the chances when my two littles were born. Just so happens both trailed Bootsy and the Hammer by a few months. Or when in the first flashback scene in color on, eight, uh, on a league of their own, they're playing baseball in Willamette, Oregon. Is that where they're playing? And when I thought Michael was going to serenade us, there's a hole in the bottom of the shoe. Hope this email helps. Thank you, it does. From Cameron Thompson. Didn't Chris Saliza stay in Rehoboth Beach recently? He seems like the kind of guy who leaves the taps on and likes long, hot showers. From Bob Tapp, speaking of taps, first time, long time, but who cares? I heard your appeal on Friday's show for help on how to resolve the exorbitant water bill from your beach house. I had a second home in San Francisco while working in D.C. 
I received a bill from PG&E, that's Pacific Gas and Electric, for $900. Of course, I called to explain this was impossible, as no one had been in the home the last two months. I was told to pay the bill, and they would look into it. The next month, I got a bill for $600. This time, when I called PG&E, I again explained that no one had used the home, and in fact, there were only two appliances running in the house, the refrigerator and the charging unit for the TV remote. And if they reviewed my account, I never had a bill for more than $100. This got them to do an audit of my account, which produced a refund of about $1,000 and a new meter. This was not entirely satisfying but I've not had any issues since the new meter was installed over five years ago. Ask the county to audit your account history, and hopefully you will be refunded fairly. From Tom Burke in Syracuse, New York. I had a similar problem with my municipal water bills in Syracuse. They replaced my old water meter with the new style, which could be read remotely. When I received my first quarterly bill, which normally ran about $100 or so, it had escalated to over $1,000. My complaints were answered by the typical water department answer that I must have a leak. I told them I had thoroughly checked my water pipes as well as dye testing my toilets to verify they were not leaking either. After much accusatory statements by the water department, they agreed to send a person over to check my meter. At the time, I was told if I chose to have another meter put in, I would lose my right to appeal. Given the size of the bill, I was willing to give up my constitutional rights just to get my bill squared away. As laughable as this was, I was guilty until proven innocent. The water department person came, saw there were no leaks, and exchanged my meter with the proviso that if they didn't find anything wrong with the meter, I would have to pay for the removal or installation of the meter. Two weeks went by. I finally received a call from a non-apologetic water person worker who said they discovered the meter they had initially installed, installed was a commercial meter, not a residential meter. They issued me a credit, which lasted about two years, given the incredible overpayment I had made. I'm going to go to Rehoboth with all of these suggestions, by the way. Uh, here's another one. Brian Ricca in Wilston, Vermont. Fifth time, long time, from back in, in the ESPN days. I listened with empathy as you recounted your tale of woe with your water bill from the beach house in Rehoboth. Back in 2011, I had a similar problem with the home we live in year-round. In the fourth quarter of that fiscal year, I received a bill for $613.65 for alleged use of 90,000 gallons during, and I repeat, one fiscal quarter. Even by Gary's math, that is only three months. Our bill over the previous three quarters had averaged $122. There was no reason, no logic for this. I appealed to the director of public works from our town who told me flat out, there's nothing wrong with the meter. I then went to three select board meetings to appeal further. At one of the meetings, one of the select board members asked me if we had a cat. The reason being was she had seen YouTube videos of cats who learn how to flush toilets and do so repeatedly. We did not have a cat, and no one was repeatedly flushing the toilet, so much so that 90,000 gallons of water had gone through the meter. Finally, at the third meeting, I asked to split the bill with the town, and in a four-to-one vote, the select board agreed with me, and ultimately the saga was over. So how can this help, Mr. Tony? Perhaps a little can go on your behalf to the governing board in Rehoboth. I did plenty of research, including from the University of Pennsylvania, a fine institution that has received your hard-earned money to support the education of your youngest child, a masculine child, as well as from the U.S. Geological Survey, and would be happy to share it with you with said little to advance your cause. Regardless of ability to pay, you're right. This is about principle. You should not have to pay for a service you did not consume. Every, how many people seem to have this same problem? From Steve Tashir in Richmond, Virginia. I, too, suffer from excessive water bills. After living in my house for 18 years and paying my fair share for the water I used, billed bi-monthly, $150 in the summer, $70 in the winter. I got a single bill for $1,356 in the winter. No way we could have used that much water, even if we created a foot-thick skating rink and washed our me undies 10 times a day. As you have done, we called and called and called to hear each time, well, the meter says you use that much, so you must have used that much. 
Two plumber bills later, no leaks found, no explanation, more phone calls. And finally, after three months, I got a guy, Eric, who understands. He orders a meter change and actually calls me back two weeks later to say they have agreed with me and will credit my account for all the overcharges. Just keep at it until you find your Eric. I have sent in the person who manages the house, who's run every single faucet. There are no leaks. Yesterday, we sent in a plumbing company. They ran every single faucet. There are no leaks. There are no leaks. How do you get... I mean, how do you get $1,070 for a bill? Do you have a cat? I don't have a cat. But <laughs> I've, that's seen, I've seen funny. a YouTube video. Yeah. <laughs> Thomas W. Branch writes, Dear Mr. Tony, hearing about your sudden water use, I have something like that happened while I was out of town. Luckily for me, my neighbor was home to witness what happened. Many places, there's a water valve right after the meter. One day, a pest control truck pulled up and hooked a hose to this and filled a water tank without my knowledge. Luckily, the person across the street took photos, so I was able to dispute the extra amount. You may want to have someone check to see if you have that. Also, they sell water monitors to put in the house to shut off water if a line breaks and will monitor and tell you what is using water on an app. Will it tell a Michael who would be monitoring the app? Because I wouldn't know how to monitor the app. All of these things are good. And from Mike Villarosa in Chicago, just wanted to drop a line and say thank you for spotting me the water to help the ocean levels continue to rise. <laughs> I'll have Florida underwater in no time. We got a hundred of these. We got a hundred. This is really funny, and I'll end on this from Joe Anderson in Alexandria, Virginia. If you want to get to the bottom of the case of your missing gallons of water, let me suggest you get in touch with Southern California-based private eye Jake Giddies. You may recall he handled the Hollis Mulray affair a few years back. My sister, my daughter, was in all the papers. Nah, forget about it, Tony. It's Rehoboth Town. If you're out on your bike, time to everyone, as always, do wear white. And that's from the great movie with Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway. Who's your favorite pitcher? Max Scherzer. What does Max Scherzer do? Phoenix. Who's your favorite batter? Soto. Soto? Uh. Just a kid when we met had a lot left to figure out. Another drinking and never sleeping by me out. But now it's better with you sleeping by my side. And if you feel me, do you want to stay for one more night? I don't
get your love I don't want your money No, I just wanna be your boyfriend I'm not giving it up I don't want your money I just need your love I don't want your money No, I just wanna be your boyfriend Nothing but 